Good morning. Well, uh, Tuesday, October 31st, is the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. And, uh, and it, it was a big deal in history. And uh, so we're going to spend the day uh, talking and focusing on that a little bit. And uh, I, I almost hesitate to tell you this, but uh, Camille and I lived in Germany from 1977 to 1980. Uh, I was stationed over there. And I knew nothing about the Reformation. And there I was. I used to take equipment to get it calibrated where Martin Luther lived. And I was so oblivious of the Reformation. So, uh, I'm going to make sure when you visit Germany, you know about the Reformation this morning <laughs> and, uh, and, and the way that God used it. And uh, so, here's kind of the deal throughout church history, throughout the history uh, since sin entered the world, uh, is that even people that know God, um, there's, there's always a drift away from God, isn't there? Isn't that frustrating? But that's the reality. Individually and, uh, and within the church, uh, there's always a drift away. But God always makes sure that he comes and he raises up people to, to correct the drift and to get it back in place. And, uh, of course, the Lord Jesus was doing this when he was here, right? It had drifted, and he came partly to bring it back and then, of course, to do something nobody else could do, and that is to be the sacrifice for sin. Uh, we could go through any of the New Testament letters, and as we do, what's it doing? It's restoring the truth. It's correcting drift. And sometimes it's very uh, bold and clearly, like in Galatians, oh, foolish Galatians, you know, who has bewitched you? Who has pulled you away? Um, in other ways, it comes out in a lot of ways. After the New Testament was completed, of course, uh, we need to keep going back to that uh, to correct our drift individually and as a church. But uh, historically, there were church councils, and these church councils would meet together, and they would sort out things like which books are in the New Testament, or how do we communicate how Jesus could have been fully God and fully man. And so they dealt with some, uh, you know, easy, easy things like that, um, because it's easy to get it wrong, and a lot of people were getting it wrong. And so, so they were the church councils down through history there. Um, about uh, oh, 1,200 or so, um, the church, uh, really the, uh, the Bible-believing church kind of uh, became a very small minority. Now, God always has, his people, has had his people. He always will. But the Roman Catholic Church grew to be the predominant uh, uh, religious institution in the world. Now, that's not to say that their Islam wasn't going strong. It was going strong. In fact, there's a lot of bloody crusades uh, during those years. That's not to say the Buddhism and Hinduism uh, and ancestor worship and, uh, and the worship of the Greek and Roman gods weren't going on because all of those things were happening. But as far as those who would claim the scriptures and, and uh, claim a belief in Christ, the Roman Catholic Church was the powerhouse in the world of the day. In fact, it was so powerful that when King Henry VIII 
wanted to divorce his wife in 1534, and the Pope said no, he says, I'll start my own church, and uh, I'll be the head of that church, and that's the beginning of what? The Anglican Church, the Church of England, and what comes into America as the Episcopal Church. And so let me just walk through some of the things that the Roman Catholic Church believed in those days. Uh, Much of this is still true. Now, I want to be real clear that not all people that are part of a Roman Catholic Church believe these necessarily, but this is what the Roman Catholic Church was teaching. Uh, Things like uh, there's only one translation of the Bible. It would have been the Latin Vulgate. Uh, most people, a lot of people were uneducated, and those that were did not know Latin, and that the Mass had to be done in Latin, and even those who were, um, couldn't read did not understand Latin. And thus, people were dependent upon the priest to understand what the Bible said. In addition to that, the Bible was not the only authority for faith and practice. It was the Bible plus what the uh, Roman Catholic leadership would say about it, as well as church tradition. And so those things all came together to determine what the authority was for faith and practice. So part of what all this does is it makes uh, priests necessary intermediaries between God and people. They'll tell you what the Bible says, they'll tell you what it's supposed to be worked out as, and how that all works. And in fact, it wasn't just the priest, but also there was uh, the saints and Mary who you often went to, to be able to get to God. One of the biggest things was, is that they believed to be righteous before God, you needed to trust Jesus, and you need to do meritorious works. In other words, Christ alone was not enough for salvation. You had to do both of those things, and they prescribed which of those things you had to do. They were the seven sacraments and still are. They also believed in purgatory. Purgatory was a place for good Catholics uh, on their way to heaven, but it's a place where you would go to pay for your sins that uh, were not yet paid for so that you could get into heaven, and, uh, and thus they were to be purged and uh, Even the last pope when he died uh, believed that he was going to go to purgatory. Um, And so uh, that's the place that you would go. One of the ways that was uh, prevalent during the, uh, especially 1400s around that time, but it's still even in use today, was the idea of indulgences. And that is you could pay some money and your sins could be forgiven. And, uh, And so this was a big thing. Now, again, not all Roman Catholics believe all these things, or they may not believe any of it. And in fact, the Reformers almost all came out of the Roman Catholic Church. They were a part of that. And uh, some of them tried to reform it from the inside, and uh, that didn't work so well. Uh, But but that was very much the religious climate of the day. Now, as I said, God's always at work to restore the greatness of who He is, and He always does this through people. Now, there are hundreds and and certainly thousands of men and women whom God used to do this reformation, to get get the primary belief system back to what it was in the New Testament 
and the early church. I want to just mention four of them to you this morning. Uh, the first one is John Wycliffe. He, he was an Englishman. He's a professor at Oxford University. He was a part of the Roman Catholic Church, um, philosopher, theologian. What happened in Wycliffe's life was he, he uh, began to realize that the Scriptures alone are reliable revelation from God and, uh, and maintained that all Christians should rely on the Bible rather than on the teaching of popes and clerics. He also believed that the Scriptures should be put in the, in the language of the people so that they could understand it themselves. And so he translated the Bible from the Latin Vulgate into the English language of, of that day. Now, once you start dealing with the Scriptures, then you recognize oftentimes how far things have drifted. And, and thus, with that came uh, him writing and uh, uh, about all kinds of other things, uh, rejecting the concept of purgatory, uh, clerical celibacy, uh, selling of indulgences, praying to the saints, all those kinds of things. Now, when we talk about uh, Wycliffe, which Wycliffe Bible Translators is, of course, named after, he's not the first one to take the Scriptures and put it in the vernacular of the people. During the first 300 years of the church, uh, first, what, three or four centuries of the church, uh, the, the Greek New Testament was translated into Latin, Coptic, Syriac, Armenian, Georgian, Gothic, and Arabic that we know of. And, and we have those copies from all of those languages. In fact, we have fragments in all of those languages of the New Testament. We have 20 to 25,000 copies that's one of the reasons we know the New Testament is, is trustworthy, is because all of those fragments have been found and used. So putting the Bible in the, in the language of the people was something that happened very early on, very early on. But then it got away from it as the scriptures were really taken out of the hands of people. Wycliffe made a big turn to put it back into the hands of the people. Wycliffe died when he was 64 years old. He had a stroke as he was leading a mass one day. The effect of Wycliffe, though, continued on, and his writings continued to be handwritten and published, uh, and his translation continued to be published. So 30 years later, the Roman Catholic Church had a council, and they declared Wycliffe a heretic. They banned his writing, and they excommunicated him. I'll bet that really bothered him, don't you think? <laughs> In fact, they were so upset at Wycliffe that they ordered that he, his body was to be dug up and that it was be burned and that his ashes were to be thrown into a river. And that's exactly what they did. And for many people, that became a metaphor for how Wycliffe's work would be spread uh, throughout the nation. Well, while this was going on in England and a little bit after it, there's another guy, John Huss, who's in Prague, what we know of as what Czechoslovakia today. And um, now, interestingly, Camilla and I got the chance to go to Prague a few years ago with our son Lucas and his family who were stationed in Italy at the time. And it's really cool if you get to Prague to go in some of those churches 
who were, which were built in 600 or 700, and they all trace their lineage back to, you know, some of the original disciples and followers of Jesus. But again, it had drifted away. And so John Huss, partly from the influence of Wycliffe, uh, partly because God was raising him up, again reached the same conclusions about the authority of Scripture and how it is to be the sole authority. Now, he was also a, a teacher at the university in Prague. He was a Roman Catholic priest and philosopher. But as he began to, 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 to believe what the Scripture said, he began to confront the abuses in the Roman Catholic Church. Unlike uh, Wycliffe, he was tied to a stake with wood around him and strangled and set on fire. And he died as a martyr of the church standing upon the truth of Scripture. The third one is the one that we probably most commonly are aware of, and that is Martin Luther. He's in Germany. He had studied to be a lawyer, but there was within Luther's heart this, this burning desire to please God. And he thought, uh, I'm going to not become a lawyer I'm going to become a priest so that I can please God. But he found that even becoming a priest and practicing all that he was told to do to please God, and he was some of the most rigorous of fasting and, uh, and uh, sleeping uh, cold and in hard places and all of those things, and it was probably his lawyer mind at work, he understood that if a single sin wasn't dealt with by the sacraments that were prescribed, that he was not pleasing to God, and it drove him crazy. In fact, one of the articles I read said that he was a neurotic about this. Well, I don't know that he was really neurotic. He just understood the realities that if you have a single sin that isn't forgiven, you, you're, coming, you're under the condemnation of God. And it rightfully drove him almost crazy. What it did do was drive him to the Scriptures, and as he was reading through the book of, to the Romans, the light bulb came on of how Jesus Christ had paid for all of his sins completely and fully, and that you're justified by faith alone, not through any works that you do. And it's just this marvelous gift of God's grace. And, uh, and so, as a result of that, things that were going on within the Roman Catholic Church bugged him. And, uh, and so, to provoke a discussion, he wrote up 95 things that he wanted to talk about. And he, the, one of the high holy days in the Roman Catholic Church is All Saints Day on November 1st. And, uh, and so, he put it on the door of the Wittenberg Church, intending to provoke a discussion of these things. God had other plans, and in many ways, it was the very light that caused to burst into flames um, a whole return to biblical thinkings and the Bible itself. And so, um, that's why we celebrate this on October 31st, is because that's the day he put those things. Now, if you want to see the 95 theses, we've put them around on the different doors, we did put them in English so people like you and me could understand, um, but those are, uh, are the things that he wanted to talk about. Now, Luther, 
uh, obviously was taken to task by the Roman Catholic authorities. And uh, on one of those uh, on one of those occasions, he was called in to a trial uh, with one of the Roman Catholic people, Jonathan Eck. And when he walked in, his writings were displayed on a table. And, uh, and the first question he was asked is, did you write these? Oh, okay, so let me back up for a minute. So he wrote a lot. One of the things he did was he, put the, uh, he took the Latin Vulgate and he put it in the German vernacular of the day. In fact, in those days, there was kind of two different dialects of the German language, and he unified those. So Martin Luther is really credited with being the one who formalized the German language. Uh, he also created schools so people could learn, particularly schools for girls and women, so that they could learn to read the Bible on their own. And he wrote a bunch of tracts. Now, what God did in the middle of Martin Luther's life was the printing press was invented. And boy, that just magnified the ability to get this stuff out. And so he was called into this trial before one of the Roman Catholic officials, and all of his stuff was out there, his translation of the Bible, some of these pamphlets that he has written. Um, and he was asked, did you write these? And do you stand by them, or will you recant? And he said, I did write these. And he said, can I think about this overnight? And they said, Yes. And so he thought about it overnight, and when he was called back in the next day, he said this, unless I'm convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the Pope or in councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradict themselves, I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is capt captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. May God help me. Amen. And it's interesting that he saw standing with God as more safe than anything else. Well, as that was going on there and a little bit behind it, uh, last guy here, John Calvin. There's a lot of other ones, but John Calvin. You might notice to be a reformer, uh, you just need to have the cool hat, right? <laughs> That's what it takes to be a reformer, so. Uh, <laughs> but John Calvin uh, was in France uh, when all of this began to percolating. He was also um, a humanist lawyer and uh, was a part of the Roman Catholic Church. But he again became convinced that the scriptures were the sole revelation of God, uh, from God to people concerning uh, the truth of who he is. And, uh, and he began to read them and study them. And he began to write actually about them what we know as the Institutes of Christian Religion, which if you just ever really want to read something, it's, it's fairly verbose. But it's, it's an amazing description of so many things. Well, he was in France. Uh, when the persecution arose there, he fled to Basel, Switzerland. Uh, this is where his institutes were first published, and he began to preaching there. He was expelled from there, and he went to Strasbourg, Germany. 
And uh, there he really ministered uh, to refugees, Christian refugees who had fled France and had gone to Strasbourg, Germany. Uh, some years later, he was invited to go back to Geneva. The situation had changed there, and he was the pastor of the church there until he died. He was known for hour-long sermons without using a single note. Uh, if you read his institutes, obviously a very brilliant man that God used. Uh, he delivered 200 sermons on the, on, uh, on the book of Deuteronomy. I like John Calvin. Through all of the Reformation and what God was doing, if you just want to boil down what God did, uh, it, it's, it's captured in what are called the five solas, and these are them. It, it's captured that Scripture alone is the authority for our faith and our practice, and that it is by faith alone and grace alone in Christ alone that we can have a relationship with God and live the Christian life, and that everything in this world and in our lives is to be about the glory of God alone. And so with that, uh, Stephen's going to lead us through a time of just uh, emphasizing some of these and uh, singing about them. We take so much of this probably for granted um, but you need to know there's hundreds of people who lost their lives during just a couple hundred years there because they choose to say this, and they would not change. And so in many ways, we stand on their shoulders today, and we have the freedom and, the, and uh, just the amazing privilege to declare these truths together. Of the men that God used in the Reformation... Um, to, to get us back to the five solas. Uh, just let's pause for a minute and just talk about these men a little bit. And um, because it's important to realize that that's not just a historical situation. That's what he's always been doing through history. In fact, he's up to that even today of raising up godly men and women um, with certain convictions that are willing to die for them should that become necessary and, and yet they have flaws. Here's a trailer for a movie about Martin Luther that just kind of captures some of this particular man. He had no idea that he was striking the match that would light up Western civilization. Karl Barth uh, makes the observation that Luther, when he posed the 95 Theses, was like a blind man climbing a tower in the church, in the bell tower, and he began to lose his balance, and he reached out to grab something to stabilize himself, and what he grabbed in his blindness was, was the rope for the church bell, and accidentally awakened the whole town <laughs> by the ringing of the bells. In many ways, it was the beginnings of the modern world. But there was something to that singular moment of the posting of the 95 Theses that not only changed church history, this changed world history for the centuries to come. And no longer now would human tradition and ecclesiastical councils and even the Pope himself be the authority in the church. The highest arbitrator in the church would now be 
Thus says the Lord, as it was recorded in the canon of written scripture. I'd like to say it's a dangerous book for Luther because it will kill you. It will take you as a sinner and will deliver you into Christ's death. And then it will raise you up as a new person. He knew how serious this was. And he knew, as his critics had said to him, that he before God would have to answer the question, are you alone wise? He was the monk who changed the world. But there was one aspect of Martin Luther, for better or for worse, that never changed. Luther was a bullheaded man who was capable of moments of supreme self-confidence when he knew it was right and he was going to move ahead like a bull in a china shop. The problem with that kind of personality though is when they get hold of the wrong end of an argument or when they go off in the wrong direction, uh, the damage can be as spectacular as the greatness was spectacular. And yet this was the man, this was the man that God used to recapture the gospel. He restored the word of God, the Bible, to the center of Christian life and worship. He reestablished the importance of family, the value of music, the dignity of human labor, but most significantly of all, he recovered the truth that a person's justification in the eyes of God comes by grace alone, through faith alone. I am absolutely certain that no power on, on earth, no force in this world can ever extinguish the kingdom of God, that uh, the church cannot and will not lose. The church of Christ will conquer all things. That's the hope that we have. Actually, encouraging life groups to watch this movie this week, um, and uh, it's it's really well done. So. Luther uh, is just one of the men that we talked about, and uh, besides having cool hats to be a reformer, uh, there are some common characteristics, and the, the one of them is, is that God brought them from spiritual death into spiritual life. He brought them into a relationship with Him. He did that through His Word, and, and they became convinced that the Scriptures alone were the foundation uh, for all of things of knowing God and living out our lives according to His will. And they believed it so strongly that things, uh, belief systems that were contrary to that, they felt an obligation to confront those, and they did. And they did it at great risk to their own lives and to their families, and they did. They were all imperfect men, however. And, uh, and uh, you can go through each one of them. Wycliffe had some off-balance views concerning the authority of kings. Luther had some very anti-Semitic views that came out. Some attribute that just to old age. Um, <laughs> but there's some other things. Uh, Calvin had his issues. And actually, the fact that uh, God uses finite men actually just reaffirms these solas. And that's why we don't worship Luther. We don't worship Calvin. We don't look to them. 
We let them disciple us to the extent that they can so that Scripture alone is our foundation and authority for life and that Christ alone, known by faith alone, so that we might experience the grace of forgiveness alone, that's our foundation. And to the extent that Wycliffe and Huss and those guys can get us back to this, this is where we rest. And then we want to be men and women like those folks. And God, of course, has to work with imperfect people. Why? Because it's all he's got to work with, right? (laughs) It's all he's got to work with. But part of it is for that last thing, so that God would alone get the glory for what is done. He is a very, very, very jealous God. So I want to just uh, walk through these solas again. Uh, Stephen has led us through them. We've sung them. But let me walk through them uh, quickly again. And so, sola scriptura, scripture alone. Turn in your Bibles, grab a Bible, and turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Now, there's a lot of places we could go concerning the authority of Scripture. Certainly, we could go to those places where just the simple phrase, thus saith the Lord. Or we could go into Psalm 1, uh, where the Scriptures are the law of the Lord, and to the extent that we meditate in the law of the Lord day and night, we will be by that, like that tree that's planted by rivers of water, uh, takes us right down into our relationship with Christ, and uh, the grace of God, uh, whereby we experience the fruits that God alone can allow us to experience. Uh, Wycliffe so believed in the authority of the Scriptures, and he so discipled his followers, so that the opponents called the followers of Wycliffe of the day the Bible men. That's what they were known as. Not a bad thing to be labeled, right? The Bible men. Luther said this, He said, reason could be used to question men and institutions, but not God. Human beings could learn about God only through divine revelation, and thus the importance of Scripture. And that's what we see here. Let's jump in at verse 16. We'll do 16 and 17, and then jump back up a little bit there. But this is just one of those all-encompassing statements that all Scripture, all that God has given us in the Bible, is inspired, literally breathed out by God. And so what we say is God so superintended and worked through people that uh, it came through their personalities, it came through their abilities in such a way that in the original uh, manuscripts, it was without error. It was inerrant, it is infallible, and it is profitable. That's probably the most important thing for us. It's profitable. The Scriptures are profitable. It is what brings profit to our lives It could be well said, it is what makes our lives profitable. It's what makes our lives good for something. And it lists four different ways and four different ways in which it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. In other words, the Scriptures tell us what is right, what is the truth, 
what we should believe. It also tells us when we're not thinking and believing correctly, when we're not behaving correctly. It's good for reproof. It is that thing that says, you're wrong. You're screwing up. Now, the beauty about God is He never points that out without this next thing happening, and that is it's profitable for correction. How do you get back on the right path? How do you, how do you uh, change the way that you're believing to believe correctly? It's good for correction, and then it's good for training in righteousness so that the righteous ways of God become a part of who we are. And so it's profitable in those four ways so that the man of God, so that the follower of Jesus may be adequate and equipped for every good work. Now, now the, these words come, and, and uh, Paul is reminding his spiritual son Timothy this at the end of his life, because even though Timothy has experienced that, it's easy to forget that. Go back up to verse 14, and he reminds Timothy about how he is a profitable man because of the Word of God in his life. He says, you, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, that would have been his mother and grandmother, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings. These are writings that are set apart. These are writings that are holy, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Now, Timothy had experienced that. And what Paul is saying is, the Scriptures brought you into a relationship with Christ. They have given you that wisdom. They will continue to do that. Never abandon the Scriptures. You need them to become wise about becoming a follower of Jesus. You need them to be wise about how to live as a follower of Jesus because the Scriptures alone reveal to us who God is and who we are and what it means to be rightly related to Him. Jesus said it this way, on the night that He was betrayed, after the Last Supper, there's this amazing prayer in John 17. And as a part of that prayer for the disciples that were with Him, and to those who would believe through the years for you and I today, he says, sanctify them in truth. He says, clean them up, make them holy, make them right with you, God, set them apart for the profitable life that you have for them. How does that happen? What's it say? Your word is truth. It happens through God's word. That's what he has given to us, and what a privilege it is to have it in so many different languages even today. Now, one of the things that the Scripture does, then it walks through all these other four solas, and it confronts so many other things. And so, the next three I'm going to kind of deal with together and just address uh, each one of them, and the, well, we'll pull them all together. In grace alone... Uh, one of the returns of, of biblical Christianity that the Reformation bought 
is that it is a, a gift of God's grace alone whereby we can have a relationship with Him. We contribute only our sinfulness and unworthiness. We do not contribute at all to a right standing with God. And how then is that experience? Well, it's like any gift. It has to be received, and it is received by faith. It is by faith alone. This grace is lived out by faith. It's laid hold of by faith. We've been seeing that in 1 Peter. Turn over to James chapter 2. James chapter 2. Let's look at, uh, at this whole issue of the relationship between faith and works. James chapter 2. Because it is a little confusing, um, especially because of our natural proclivities as people. Let's jump, let's jump into verse 18 instead of verse 20, actually. But someone, by the way, Martin Luther did not think the book of James should have been in the canon, because this kind of stuff bugged him, because of what he came out of. And, and that's part of what's important to know about all of the people that God used, uh, whether it's Wycliffe or Calvin. They, they, they all are kind of conformed to their culture that they come out of, just like you and I are. And, and sometimes there's a, there's a huge pendulum swing to the other side, and sometimes you bring some of it with you. And, and that's true of each one of them, and it's true of you and I as well. Uh, that, we're, that we are more conformed to our culture or reactive to our culture sometimes. But jump into verse uh, 18. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. He says, you're going to bump into people who say, I have faith. I have faith. He says, I'll show you my faith by my works. Look at the outcome of my faith. And he gives an example. He says, you believe that God is one. I mean, you're, you're saying that. You have faith that God is one. You know what category that puts you in? That puts you in the same category as demons. Demons also believe that God is one. But they shudder because they know more than that. They have the truth right. They, they believe that. But there's no true trust in working that out. Now, demons can't believe because of their fixed state, because of the rebellion. But people can. But he says, if you say, well, I just have faith, but I don't have any works, you're in the same category as demons. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? In what ways is it useless? He gives a couple of examples here. First, he goes to Abraham. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. 
and he was called the friend of God. So what does the life of Abraham point out? Uh, Romans chapter 2 uses Abraham as an example as well. Abraham says that Abraham was justified, made right with God when? When he what? What's it say there? When he believed. Yeah, in verse 23, when he believed. But what was the proof that that was a true belief? He sacrificed Isaac. See, a true belief in God will show up in works. It will bear fruit. Now, it will be imperfect. He didn't mention here the acts of unbelief that Abraham had, about lying about who his wife was, and a few things like that, right? But, but true faith, a person is justified with God through belief, but true belief will show up in obedience and in some works. And so that's why it says the works complete that. It make it perfect. It shows the reality of faith. We're going to wrap up in uh, uh, Romans 12, 1 and 2 uh, this morning. And, and there it says, you know, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that what? You might prove the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Why shouldn't we be conformed to this world? Why should we be renewed by God's word? Because then you say, God, your way is the best way. It's the perfect way. Uh, That's the way this faith works out. It proves the beauties of who God is. And when Abraham went up to sacrifice Isaac by faith, what did God do? He showed up the beauty of his works and his ways. And he looked back and his faith was completed in the sense that he says, praise be to you, God. You are worthy to be trusted. Verse 24, you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, here's another example, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? Why did Abraham take the messengers in? Well, you read through the account because she had faith that God was God. She remembered what happened the years before when they came out of Egypt. Those stories had caused her to believe that the God of Israel was the true and the living God. And because she truly believed that, there was actions that took place in her life. And so the simplest summary is there in verse 26. For just as a body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. So what's the point here? A person is justified by faith alone. If it is a true faith in God, it will show up in some works. If it's not, it's a bunch of hot air. It can be an accurate description of who God is, but if there is not some following of God, some obedience to God in works, it's in the same category as the demons. And so it is by faith alone, and that's what makes it confusing because it's easy then to add in works to say that you're made right with God by your works. No, you're made right with by your by your faith. 
Well, what are we to have faith in? Christ. Have faith in Christ alone. Turn over to Titus chapter 3. We read uh, Ephesians 2, 8, 9 earlier. Titus is another place that this is emphasized and really kind of brings together faith alone, by grace alone, and Christ alone. Jump into verse 3 of Titus chapter 3. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. That's just a description of human nature, right? Yep. Some of us lived in it longer than others, but that's the reality. And then that beautiful three-letter word, but... But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, who saved us? He saved us. He saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, not even good deeds we've done, but according to his mercy. He didn't give us what we deserved. How did that happen? By the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God was intimately involved in setting us apart, if you will. Yeah, sanctifying us. Whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Who's the Savior? Jesus Christ. Is there any other Savior? Can you trust in your baptism to be your Savior? Can you trust in your church membership to be your Savior? Can you trust in any good works? No, it is Jesus Christ alone who is our Savior, so that being justified by what? His grace we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God, there's that faith alone, right? Those who have believed God now will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for many. He goes on and tells us some things not to do that are inconsistent with a belief in God. Foolish controversies, genealogies, strife and disputes about the law, so on and so forth. And so uh, Titus 3 just kind of pulls all of those three things together, grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. The last one is for the glory of God alone. And I, I just love the doxology at the end of Romans 11. So flip over to Romans 11. Now Paul, the book of Romans is the most detailed laying out of justification by grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone, 
by the grace of God. It is the most detailed explanation of this and how we don't contribute anything. And so at the end of that amazing declaration, uh, there's this doxology that the Apostle Paul burst out with because when you stand back and look at God's redemptive work of you yourself, of other people, of this whole planet, when you step back and look at that, your heart can't help but do anything else but to say, wow, God, praise be to God. And, and look at the way that it sums it up here. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How deep did God have to go to save you from your sin and your the judgment you deserved. How deep did he have to go? He had to send his only begotten son. He had to pour out his wrath upon his only begotten son so that Christ would pay for your sins and then be raised again on the third day. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Just go, go beyond even the depth of his riches in, uh, in redeeming you. Uh, look at his riches in this world in which we live. A sunset or the trees or whatever it might be. Look at the riches of family relationships. I mean, there's a lot of riches, right? There's a lot of riches, and that's before we get to heaven. Oh, the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments. He makes perfect decisions and unfathomable his ways. Quoting from the Old Testament, for who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again. Now we, we all do that, don't we? It's the stupidest idea in the world. Counsel God. Tell him what he should do. Make suggestions. Inform him about certain circumstances. I mean, who knows his mind? Thankfully, he's told us a lot of it, and it's only in the scriptures that we know that. Who's known the mind of the Lord? Or Let's answer these questions. How about that? I'll ask them. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor? What's the answer? No one. Nobody, nobody, nobody. Or who was first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? What's the answer? Nobody. God doesn't owe me anything and he doesn't owe you anything. That's why it all comes by grace. For from him and through him and to him are all things. Anything good, anything good that you and I experience has come from him. Just think about the good things in your life. They came from him. They came through him. And guess what's supposed to happen now? It's supposed to return back to him in praise and honor 
and love and submission. It's to return back to him, the one who gave it. So to him be the glory forever, and we say what? Amen. Amen. So then I urge you, brothers and sisters, as you, as you think about these mercies of God, as you just get a, a thimbleful of the mercies of God towards you, that you take your stinking hands off of your life and you present your whole life to God as a living sacrifice. Let him put his hands upon your life. It's the no-brainer response of worship to him. You came from him, you came through him. He wants to use you and work in you for his great honor and glory. So remove your hands like you would on a sacrifice that's given to God and let God take full and complete charge of your life so that you might live a life to the glory of God in all things. What's the greatest enemy to that? Getting conformed to this culture. Don't be conformed to this culture, and we all are. We are in ways we're totally ignorant of. Don't be conformed to this culture. I was at some missions meeting this week and just talking about the missionaries that we send out. And part of our vision statement was, are we really asking them to risk all? It's a very sobering discussion to have. And one of the idols of our culture, as Pastor Sumboot pointed out probably 10 or 15 years ago, is safety or our reputation. Now, that doesn't mean that you're not wise as serpents. But we're all conformed. How do you, how do you, how do you get beyond that? By the renewing of our minds, staying right here, and letting God put his finger on areas of our heart where we've been conformed to the culture, and as he renews our minds, we're transformed. And as we're transformed, we start showing the beauty of God's ways, the good and acceptable and perfect ways of God. It all came from him. It all came through him. Let's return it back to him because he deserves the glory and honor. Amen? Amen. Father, thank you for your great love for us. We're humbled by it. And Spirit of the living God, even now, would you just continue to put your finger on our hearts? Your word is profitable for what is true. Your word is profitable for telling us where we need to, where we're wrong. Your word is profitable to get us back on right thinking and right behavior. And your word is profitable to train us in this way of life as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to you. Thanks be to you, God. And it's in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen.